This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on root cause healing, which often starts with a gut healing protocol that uses a meat only diet. I'm excited to share this interview with Menno Henselmas. He focuses on evidence based research to get to your maximum physical potential. He has published multiple studies and has done so much research into what. Levers you can pull to get to your ideal physique. He talks about diet and he advocates for a ketogenic diet, but he also advocates for strength training. We talk about the difference between cardio or endurance training versus strength training and what is ideal in the long term. We also talk about differences in women and men in terms of exercise. I really wanted to get Menno on because he is the authority in terms of how to best improve your physique, especially when it comes to the studies out there. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Menno. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've been looking really forward to this interview.、Um, for those of the people that are listening and watching that don't know you, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Menno Enselmans, and I'm Uh, an international public speaker, scientist,、uh, coach, and I own a PT certification company. So I'm very much into evidence based fitness. And I spent almost all of my time on that, basically, which、um, is, well, it's always been my, my true passion because I actually started my career as a business consultant. And I chose、uh, at some point to pursue something that I, I was really passionate about and I really wanted to do in life. Rather than the career path that was sort of set out for me by my parents and my surroundings. Yeah, I can completely relate. I was a management consultant for almost 12 years and then I got sick. And then I didn't know that nutrition was a passion of mine. And then I went the same way. So I, I can totally relate、mm, nice. to that. You're really into evidence based research. And I think I read or listened to some of your podcasts, read some of your research papers where you say that. Doing cardio and then lifting weights are two different actions on the body and they're almost counter 
acting one another. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? And you know, you're not the biggest fan of cardio. And if you can explain why it's not really necessary for weight loss and just even maintaining physique. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you can think of adaptations that you impose on the body or stresses that you impose on the body that result in certain adaptations along a continuum from endurance to strength. Okay. And broadly speaking, you can categorize any kind of physical exercise somewhere on that spectrum. You could make a case that power is slightly different, but um, well, for most, most intensive purposes, strength endurance is pretty much uh, going to cover it. And of course, cardio and strength training fall on basically polar opposite ends of that spectrum. Even if you're doing high intensity interval training, like sprinting, many people have the idea that it's, you know, very close to strength training. It's absolutely not. If you want to train like a sprinter, then you should train like an actual sprinter, which means you're sprinting for like 10 seconds and then you're resting for five minutes. You know, most people think of Tabata protocols, like 20 second sprinting and then 10 second rest as training like a sprinter, but Olympic sprinters, short distance sprinters, because the long distance sprinters don't really have the physiques that most people aspire to, uh, at least not the people I work with, um, is, is, is a very different ballpark. So you can actually see this in individuals if they do endurance training, you stimulate more uh, AMPK signaling and it's more metabolic. There's more substrate depletion. So the adaptations that occur are things like mitochondrial uh, protein synthesis, sarcoplasmic protein synthesis, um, increases in lung capacity, heart capacity. And if you do strength training, the focus is a lot more on muscle hypertrophy. The muscle gets bigger. There's an increase in strength. There are adaptations in the nervous system that increase the amount of uh, force the body or the muscles can produce even relative to their size. So these adaptations, when you try to put both of the body, you have both of these stresses on the body at the same time, the body essentially has to prioritize. It cannot do both at the same time. So a very crude analogy is that you can think of it as a garden hose. And with endurance training, you're basically telling it you need to be more conservative with energy. You need a very long, sustained, slow output of water. And with strength training, you're saying, okay, we need to output as much water as we possibly can. So we need a big hose. And, you know, in the body, it's, um, it's a lot more subtle, of course. There seems to be interference between mTOR and AMPK signaling, for example, which are anabolic pathways that result in different types of protein synthesis. So essentially, if you're doing both at the same time, especially in close proximity to one another, then the body has to choose which kind of adaptations it wants. And that results in a compromise on both accounts, typically. So you won't gain as much muscle, you won't gain as much strength. Sometimes you also won't gain as much endurance. Although usually, if you do both at the same time, the focus shifts towards endurance. Because if you think about it, if you do a strength training workout and then a cardio session afterwards, then essentially it's, it's like one very long endurance session because there's a lot of substrate depletion and fatigue from the strength training. And then with the cardio session that adds on top of that. Sure. Okay. And, and that makes sense. Um, why is it that then a lot of people say we need to warm up the body and do like 10, 20 minutes of cardio, and then we'll go lift. So mm-hmm. would you, is that ill-advised or is that just not enough of either one for the lay person that it's not as, I guess, taxing on the body. Right. That won't uh, result in what exercise scientists call the interference effect. Okay. Because it's, it's relatively low intensity. It's not strenuous. You also don't have to worry about things like walking to the gym or just going for a short hike. 
taking the bicycle somewhere. Those things aren't a problem because they don't result in significant endurance adaptations. So they also won't initiate all the signaling pathways that can um, negatively interact with the anabolic signaling pathways from strength training. Okay. So it's it's really for endurance training. Even mild cardio is not necessarily a problem. But okay. on the other hand, it's also not really needed. Like there's nothing cardio does that you cannot also do with strength training unless you're specifically interested in endurance training. Because of course, if you want to run a marathon, you need to run. You can't just go to the gym and squat. So why is it then that for so many decades, we've believed that if you run or if cardio, that's the way to lose weight and um, strength training comes later once you've lost all the fat? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's intuitive. And I think epidemiologically, it makes some sense. If you look at people that do strength training, they tend to eat more, you know, they're taught protein is important. Sure. And if you just have someone do strength training, they typically get like beefy, especially men, you know, and if they don't pay attention to their diet and you just tell them eat a lot, you know, uh, eat big, train big, then you get big, but you don't get lean. Whereas people that do a lot of running and they they often are not as focused on their diet or they go to, you know, salad route and then it's eating health, living healthier. So those people often end up leaner. But if you actually look at scientific research, controlling for energy intake and the like, then those effects don't really occur. It's, it's all about energy intake versus energy expenditure. Okay. Okay. So for me, when I do a little bit of cardio before, let's say I even lift a small amount of weights, um, I feel mm-hmm. better, right? So I feel that kind of runner's high a little bit, and I never really get that when I lift. Is it because I'm not lifting enough? Is it because I don't break a sweat as much as if I do cardio, whether it's running a mile or doing the elliptical or something that doesn't have a lot of you know high intensity impact on my body? But I feel great doing that even for short periods. But if I lift even for like 30 minutes, even sometimes 40 minutes, I don't mm-hmm. get that, oh, I just worked out type of feeling. So right. do you know why that happens? Yeah, strength training can also be like that. Okay. But if you're talking about the, the sort of runner's high, which is a combination of endorphins and opiates, right? then you get that much easier, at least okay. with endurance training. So it's, it's I think, the result of a, a very high total amount of volume. And it's, it's hard to do that with uh, strength training. Like you could make a program that probably achieves such an effect. If you do, for example, high repetition squatting and very short rest intervals for everything. Okay. But yeah, if, if, you know, if you're primarily interested in getting a runner's high, then doing endurance training or running is probably going to be the most efficient route. And we also see some of those effects in uh, cognitive adaptations. So brain derived uh, neurotropic factor. Sure is something that is stimulated more by endurance training. Mm. And it was initially even thought that strength training could not stimulate those things. But now we see that if you're doing sufficient volume, you can actually stimulate those things as well with strength training. But endurance training is still probably better. Maybe for mental health aspects, it may be okay to do a little bit of cardio. There are different camps in the nutritional space, right? So there's people that are trying to get really, really build mass. And there's just some people Mm -hmm. that are like, I just want to do some strength training to have longevity, maintain lean body mass. What is the ideal exercise for the average person that's not trying to compete, you know, get on stage, but is just trying to preserve muscle. There's Mm -hmm. just so much conflicting information out there. There's the do reps until failure and lifting weights and at the like heaviest weight that you can do. Or there's also 
a lot of the people in like the Pilates world where it's like, do a lot of lightweight. So then you don't have to build mass. And, you know, there's a lot of information that's so different. And I just wanted to get you on because I know you're an expert in this area. In almost any scenario, training hard okay. is better and training close to failure and with relatively heavy weights, because you can basically always just reduce the volume. If you don't want to get much bigger, you could, of course, not train heavy and then do five sets of squats, but you could also do one hard set and you'll get the same result effectively. So unless you're doing it purely for the sake of energy expenditure, but even then probably um, you could just get by with uh, high reps, short rest intervals. For most people, excess muscle growth is a, a luxury problem that they don't actually have to deal with. A lot of people think they might have to deal with right. it, you know, especially women are often brainwashed into thinking, yeah. oh, you go to the gym the next morning, you wake up as the She-Hulk. Yeah, not so much. It's actually very hard to build a very muscular physique. It, most people also find that when they see these things in, happening in their body, they actually like them because a lot of people have this idea of being more toned, for example. The tone is a very common word, yeah. which actually means if you translate it to physical terms, simply more muscle growth and more fat loss. So you want to lose a bit of fat, you want to gain a bit of muscle. And that's exactly the essence of bodybuilding. So most people that want to get toned actually should do a bodybuilding program because they have the exact same goals, just to a different mile. You know, they can stop earlier or they can reduce the volume at some point when they're happy with how they look. You know, maybe they train twice or three times a week instead of every day, but you can either do it efficiently or you can do it inefficiently because they're the same goals, right? So, and if you really don't care about um, muscle growth, then probably just cardio endurance training would also be fine. But I think it is very quickly worthwhile also for health and longevity to do at least one or two strength training workouts per week. And there's actually research showing that if time is limited for most goals, including health, strength training is the more, and fat loss, interestingly, strength training is the more efficient route because with cardio, essentially what you're doing is every workout that you do is a one-time investment into your body and especially into energy expenditure. So you get some health benefits, but with strength training, you're building your body. You're literally increasing your, your body size. And what that does is it increases your metabolic rate and the amount of extra muscle mass. It also improves insulin sensitivity, which um, decreases chronic inflammation levels. So if you get more muscular and leaner, that's an investment, especially increased muscle size that keeps paying off. So for fat loss, there are also a few other advantages of strength training, but most important thing is that you're literally investing in your long-term energy expenditure that's going to pay off for the rest of your life rather than just doing, you know, a one-time 500 calorie energy burn. Okay. No. And that makes sense. So it's, you're investing a little bit more into your body, whereas cardio with strength training, but cardio is just, you're just trying to burn the calories at that moment, but there's no kind of net gain. So when you say then when we want to get toned, which I think is what, you know, everyone is really striving for. And you said that the path is similar. What is exactly that path? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful.
mostly strength training, building some muscle, losing some fat. And I'd say for most people, your, your goal should probably be to build as much muscle as possible and lose fat as quickly as possible. And at some point, when you look in the mirror and you think, I'm getting too big or I'm getting too lean, you just stop. Okay. But how do you do that? So when you say strength training, I know, for example, one thing that I remember hearing you say is that it doesn't necessarily make sense that we don't read it really necessarily need to strength train different muscles and uh, target certain muscle groups. So like, I'm going to do legs today and tomorrow I'm going to do arms. Like we don't necessarily need to do that. Mm -hmm. It's not the most efficient. So if you could one, talk about that, like how often should I, for example, go to the gym and strength train? And then in terms of, I guess, losing weight, I'm guessing it's the diet, but if you can just talk a little bit so that I have tangible ways that I can kind mm-hmm. of get lean or get, I home. think, I think we can at least say that almost everyone that trains up to three times a week should do full body strength training workouts. Okay. Don't bother with a body part split or typical bodybuilding style workouts. They're, they're not more effective in any sense. And it's in particular much more time effective to do full body training because you can use your rest intervals to train other muscle groups. So for example, you can do a set of leg curls, a set of squats, a set of pull downs, a set of bench presses, all with just one minute rest in between or something. So you can do this basically as a circuit, as it's sometimes called. And, uh, or as I call it, a combo set. If you do rest in between exercises, but not, you know, not a full five minutes, then you save so much time rather than if you do, you know, one set of bench press, three minutes rest, one set of bench press, three minutes rest, Mm. then you have done three sets in about 10 minutes. And in those 10 minutes, you could probably also do uh, two sets of like five different exercises. So then you've done 10 sets instead of three sets. And, you know, who who doesn't want to use their time more efficiently? And when you get to training, I'd say four plus times a week, mostly five plus times a week, then you can start thinking about whether you want to split the body up into, you don't have to, there's actually most research indicates that higher training frequencies are at worst equal and sometimes superior to lower training frequencies. So a good argument can actually be made that if only for the sake of time efficiency, you can always train full body. But when you're training five plus times a week, you may run into problems with not having enough rest in between muscle groups. So then that might become important. Okay. What about for women? Um, I know you have a really popular article that says that women need to train differently. Can you talk a little bit about that and why, you know, we should actually think about that as women um, with our strength training? Mm-hmm. So with when it comes to sex differences in, in sports, uh, especially strength training, there are sort of two phases that you have to go through, where first you have to get out of the, the ID, the brainwashing ID, that, like I said, you wake up the next morning as the She-Hulk, where you're going to get super bulky and big, and uh, any, any type of feminine body structure is, um, is is what you get with cardio and yoga and stretching, yes. and not with strength training. And then, essentially, you learn that you should train like a guy, because you have the same goals. And physiologically speaking, um, in that article, I actually showed that men and women have the same relative muscular potential. Right. So given their starting muscle mass and strength level, percentage-wise, they can gain muscle and strength just as fast as men if they train similarly. However, if you want to fine-tune things and optimize things, then women have some unique physiological strengths that they can take advantage of to make a bit better progression. 
uh, if or if at least make more practical progression. And one big one is that women generally do better on higher repetitions. So if you think of the relation of your maximum weight um, and how many reps you can do, so it's, it's most people at 70% of their 1RM, they can do about 12 repetitions. That's on average, but women can typically do a bit more and men can typically do a bit fewer reps. So women generally respond better to somewhat higher rep training. And when you get to especially 90 plus percent of 1RM, men can actually do um, more repetitions generally. So it's, it's an inefficient use of um, uh, time and volume, basically, to, to get enough volume in for women to train super heavy, unless you're powerlifting or something, for example. Plus, women often struggle with making uh, jumps in weight, because if you do, say, lateral raises uh, as a woman, then probably your, your all-time maximum is going to be often even 10 kilos and 20 at the, at the absolute most if you're using very strict technique at least. So, and if you're now starting at say 2.5 kilos, it's, and you're, you know, you know that in your entire life, you're not going to get past 10, 10 kilos for say 12 reps, then th- there's very little room for progression. The next dumbbell might be five kilos and it's very difficult to progress, you know, from two and a half to five, because that's a, literally a 100% increase in weight. Sure. So for women, it's generally much easier to progress in reps rather than to progress in weight. And then when you've progressed for a bit in repetitions, then you make the jump in weight. Whereas for men, it's easier to make those jumps uh, in weight. Women also don't need as much rest. They seem to recover faster in between workouts and during their workouts. So they don't need to to rest as long. They can do with shorter rest intervals in between their sets. And intuitively, most women do this. There's also some research, which is still a bit debated, but women tend to recover faster in between workouts. So they can probably handle a higher total uh, volume as well. And you can also see that they have higher work capacity. So if you look at uh, a man's typical repetitions, they may go like with, say, two-minute rest in between sets of squats, maybe 12, 10, 8. And for women, it may be 12, 12, 11, 10. Interesting. Okay. So they don't lose as many repetitions, and that indicates reduced neuromuscular fatigue, which suggests you can probably do a bit more volume. Based on what you just said, then, if women can do more repetitions, should women start with a little, you know, like not the maximum weight they can lift at the very beginning and just do a little bit less just so that they can get more repetitions in? Yeah, I like to use somewhat higher repetitions for women. Uh, I tend to auto-regulate it by prescribing a percentage. So I say you're going to use 70% of 1RM, for example, and just do as many reps as you can. And then you basically tailor the program to the um, individual's physiology, because of course it's a generalization, right? They're, they're female, so they should respond better to high repetitions, but some women do not, and some men respond better to higher reps. So then you'll automatically see that some people, mostly women, can do a lot of repetitions, maybe 15, 20, and they'll probably thrive on that because they can use the same intensity and still do many repetitions. It's easier to progress in repetitions um, that way as well. So I think that's a, a good approach. And if you're, if you're just setting rep ranges, then you probably want to err on the side of, you know, you're going to say you do sets of 12, then you probably want to say for women, you're going to err on 10 to 20% higher levels than you normally do for men. What about to get the lean side of it, right? So to lose some of the fat, you mentioned earlier that when you start lifting, you may end up eating more, you eat more protein and then, or you may just get hungrier. So how do we counteract 
that we're trying to get toned and lose some of the body fat, but not, you know, and, you know, not just bulk up with adding fat as well. I think that's, it's mostly about diet. You can tailor a training program to result in higher energy expenditure because those are the variables we're interested in energy intake and energy expenditure. A recent meta-analysis actually found that the intensity of exercise does not affect um, uh, hunger and appetite after the workout, at least for endurance training. But other research indicates that strength training is more appetite suppressing than the cardio or endurance training. So that's another advantage of strength training. Some people do actually think they get hungrier, but then they have improved satiety signaling, which causes them to stop eating earlier. Mm. So most people, when they start lifting or doing any kind of exercise, they tend to reduce their energy intake a bit automatically and therefore end up with a higher total energy expenditure and a lower energy intake, and they start losing a bit of fat. Okay. And if you want to lose more fat, that's really mostly about diet and food choices rather than um, your type of training. Because you, you can do training, you can do like high repetition squats. Do If you want to just burn a lot of energy um, with strength training, you can do very high repetitions, short rest intervals, do only compound exercises. And basically take as minimum rest as possible, string exercises together with different muscle groups. And then you can actually probably outperform uh, even endurance training and cardio that way. Um, but it's, it's not a very pleasant way um, to train for most people. Sure. I heard you talked about fat being muscle sparing. Do you, can you talk a little bit about that? Because there's so many people that, you know, especially in these events where um, people get on stage, they eat just protein and they start cutting out the fat and then their hormones, there's a very mm-hmm. high risk of hormone imbalances. Can you talk a little bit about why, why maybe fat is more ideal than just focusing on the protein? Right. Uh, you mean dietary fat, right? Not yes, yes, tissue. sorry. <laughs> right. So in contrast to, I think, conventional like bodybuilding, strength training wisdom, there's basically no evidence, like hard empirical evidence, that carbohydrates augment, other than just having calories, that, color, that carbohydrates augment the muscle growth in comparison to protein. So if you already eat enough protein at a given energy intake, carbohydrates do not add anything to protein synthesis, they don't do anything to reduce protein breakdown. So they, they simply don't really help you build muscle. The thing that they can do is increase your work output, make you stronger in the gym. That's at least a theory. I'm actually in the process of almost finished refinishing the first systematic review on the effect of carbohydrate intake on resistance training performance. Oh, okay. And I can already at least say the effect is absolutely marginal for most people. Uh, generally non-existent. Oh, wow. So it's, it's, it's very, very overrated. Whereas for fat, what most people don't know is there are actually a few studies. There are mostly in sedentary individuals and it's, it depends on the type of fatty acids that you eat, but there are at least six or so studies, and especially for omega-3s that find that at least certain types of fatty acids can increase protein synthesis. They can increase nitrogen balance, which is a, a marker of protein balance in the body and therefore of muscle growth. And they may help uh, prevent muscle loss during dieting. So it's, it's still early stages, tentative research, but they do. there are actually some indications that they can help. Um, what they can also do is increase sex hormone levels. So testosterone, estrogen. Estrogen is also anti-catabolic and very mildly anabolic. So unlike most people that fear estrogen as like a catabolic hormone or something that's bad, it's actually good for you and 
for strength training, it's, it's actually the reason women uh, recover faster than men for a large part and don't suffer as much muscle damage because estrogen protects against these things. So estrogen is definitely not an undesirable hormone to have. What fat does is it increases um, sex hormone production of those things and growth hormone, which right. we don't see it yet so much in research, but you're looking at increases of up to 30%. A recent study found 33%, I think, with high fat versus moderate fat intakes. Most research finds more effects that are 10, 20%, which are, they won't have a large physiological effect on muscle growth. And if they do, it's it's something that's going to manifest over the coming months. You know, not like carbs where you eat more carbs than your muscle glycogen stores fill and you literally immediately look bigger and you, you literally are bigger. Right. But it doesn't help you gain more muscle. Mm. It's a purely one-time cosmetic effect, essentially. So for fat, I think the jury is still out on whether, or rather how much it can help. But the indications are that in the long term, it probably is actually more desirable. And I definitely see this in contest prep, where it's very common for competitors of, of both sexes to actually end up basically castrated or uh, completely hypogonadal levels of testosterone, estrogen, um, for the last few weeks slash months running up to the show. There are multiple things in what you just talked about that uh, people say happen to them, right? So a lot of people want to say, if I don't eat carbohydrates before a workout, whether it's a little mm-hmm. bit of honey, whether it's some fruit, whatever it may be, I just can't lift as much. And so they say that they just do not perform as well what, compared to when they have two tablespoons of honey. And then the other thing is there's a lot of people that say that their testosterone drops when they eat no carbohydrates and they're eating a meat-based diet with even, I guess, you know, fatty meats. And I haven't seen that in my practice. So in my practice, if you're eating sufficient fat with your protein, your testosterone actually goes up. I think it's more of the people that are just focusing on the macronutrient of protein that then I see their, you know, their sex hormones or their steroid hormones start to decrease because they're not eating sufficient cholesterol. So do you have any thoughts of why there's a lot of people that say that they just feel better eating carbohydrates, but all other times they don't need the carbohydrates. It's just before the workout. I mean, if you're doing a pure carnivore diet, there can be some effect, mm-hmm. but probably most of it is more nocebo. So there is actually research that. Um, both for performance and for cognitive performance, people that think they need carbohydrates, they, they actually perform better when they do. But people that don't think this, they don't. They don't need okay. it. So there, there, there's probably a, a big mental effect. Uh, but there are also two studies by Naharudin um, et al., which show re- recent studies, which are, I think, really cool. They give basically a sham breakfast to people, a, a placebo breakfast. So they give modified gels that are... Well, it's not like a, a normal meal, but it's uh, at least a, a semi-solid meal with taste and texture and everything. And you don't know when you're eating that if it's just flavors that you're consuming or if it actually has calories. Got it. And then they can see that such a breakfast increases performance similarly to um, an actual breakfast with carbohydrates, whereas people that don't eat anything, they do have worse performance. Mm. So there might also be an effect of satiety, you know, being, because in those studies, they do, they do find that, uh, or at least in one of them, they measured it, that hunger levels decreased. And if you're hungry, your willpower levels might be lower. It might be harder to push yourself for those last reps. I would say it is important to eat protein before your workouts, because there are at least two studies that show 
Again, eating something compared to nothing improves performance, but protein is just as effective as carbohydrates. And in general, the trend is very strongly that um, in isocaloric settings, so when you're equating for energy content, the effects disappear almost completely. In fact, this is an extremely striking finding, I find. In our systematic review, we did not find a single isocaloric study in which higher carbohydrate intakes resulted in significantly higher strength training performance compared to a lower carbohydrate intake. None, not a single one. I mean, if you look at how ardently most people believe that carbohydrates do improve performance, I mean, there are some indication, but it's mostly during, you know, like I said, fasting, um, there's strong possibility of a psychological effect, etc. And I, like I said, I think if you're in a pure carnivore diet, you might be able to squeak out you know, a few more reps with some carbs, with protein and fat beforehand, maybe none, but there might be an effect. But in any case, the, it's definitely a dogma, the, the importance of high carbohydrate intakes. If you look purely at the data, there's simply very little to substantiate those beliefs. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I, mean, I know that there's been studies in, on ketogenic diets where they also show the same thing where people that want to build muscle or have more endurance, they don't need the carbohydrates. It's just fascinating mm-hmm. how much we believe that we need carbohydrates to function when we, we may not necessarily need it. Do you think there's a dietary difference with women and versus men in terms of this carbo- carbohydrates at all or fat intake is, at all? There is a bit, yes. I'm not sure if it's super relevant for strength training, but women seem to have slightly greater benefits from higher fat intakes. For one, the effects on sex hormone production seem to be a bit more pronounced, in particular because estrogen levels also rise significantly. And for men, you know, a 10% rise in estrogen is not super physiologically relevant, Mm -hmm. but women have far higher estrogen levels. And if you then get a 20% increase on top of that, that might actually be physiologically relevant. Uh, Plus, there's some research that indicates fat is more satiating for women than for men. And women have a glycogen sparing metabolism. So they tend to burn more fat and less carbohydrates when exercising at a given intensity. And this might be a moot point given that most people do not need carbohydrates in the first place, but with, especially for endurance training, like interval training, sprinting, then it probably becomes actually relevant. One thing I also see in the carnivore space is that there's just a lot of women that maybe doing a lot of strength training, but I think they might be under eating consistently. So then you see sort of hypothyroid symptoms. Is there a point where even doing good strength training, even eating probably not enough fat, but eating some fat is just not ideal and that you're basically starting to waste away some of the muscle because you're just not eating enough? I mean, there is definitely something as eating too too little. Um, I don't think it's carbohydrates, at least, that you need. Okay. Um, But it is definitely the case that if you're simply looking at total energy expenditure, it's going to be suppressed when you eat at a very low intake for a very long time. And the, the downside in particular is that at some point you actually start, you stop losing fat when you're at an intake that is now for you, your maintenance intake, because you're very lean and you're at a very low energy intake. And then what happens is adaptive formogenesis is very significant, which means that there is a greater decrease in your metabolic rate and your total energy expenditure than you would predict based on someone's body weight and energy intake. And the only way to negate that is basically to either gain some fat or start eating more. And of course, if you just start eating eating even less, then you can still lose fat. It's not like you're, you're broken. Right. In fact, metabolic damage is not a real permanent thing. 
but you can be in that scenario where you're, you're needlessly consuming a very low energy intake where you could actually be eating a lot more. You still wouldn't gain any fat. Um, so the maintenance rate is basically more of a range for a lot of people rather than uh, a, one, a one number. So I think the, the main downside is you're just needlessly at a very low energy intake. And I think in the long term, that can actually cause hormonal problems, definitely problems with appetite. Those are mostly the result of being at a low body fat level, I think. But eating too little, um, especially when you're looking at scenarios like contest prep, there is um, some research to support that. I think they usually talk about, um, Eric Helms has done uh, good work on that. He talks about, what is it he calls it? Um, I think they mainly talk about available energy, simply the total amount of energy that you consume over time. And if that's just very low, the body has, does not have as much to work with. I work with people in this space that um, where their energy intake is very low. So they've, they've been chronic, chronic dieters, but I'm not exactly sure what the mechanism is, but over time, they've just gained a lot of weight. Their intake, if you see it, it's consistently maybe 1200 calories. It's pretty low. How do we get that person to start losing weight? Is it just going lower in calories, which I hope it's not the answer, but, mm. or is it just lifting or strength training to, you know, build more muscle mass so that they can start burning more calories? Like what is the answer to these people that are in this vicious cycle of being overweight because they've under ate, and then maybe they have moments of excess refeeding. I'm not sure, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. In some cases, the answer might be to actually reduce energy intake, but in the vast majority of cases, I think it's underreporting and other problems like um, not doing strength training, whereby they have poor satiety signaling. In research, you find that most people that say these things, they for, forget a lot of the things they eat, or they chronically undereat, but then have, say, once a week events where they massively overeat. Mm. And because you have a relatively there's actually an asymmetry in energy in adaptive formogenesis. So if you eat very little, your metabolism goes down relatively fast. But if you overeat, it does not increase as much. Mm. So it's an asymmetric uh, curve, which means that if you, you have a lifestyle like that, where you usually eat very little, but sometimes you have high energy intakes, it's actually a lot easier to have negative body recomposition because you're, you, most of the time you're essentially cutting. And if you're not right. training, you're going to lose some muscle. And then one time you overeat and you actually gain some fat, and you won't gain muscle from one day of overeating. So over time, in some of these individuals, you can actually see that there's negative body recomposition. That makes sense. And I even see that in some people that do strength training, when they have a really poor relationship with food, generally, and uh, a poor lifestyle where they, they have to spend almost all of their time cutting to offset these um, binges or parties or social eating events that they have relatively frequently. And um, it's, it's just really, really inefficient because if you – they go to spend that same time eating a lot more and doing like a lean bulk approach where they're in yeah. constantly eating not 1200. Um, so, you know, most of the days they'd be eating, say, 1200 calories. And in fact, they could be eating, say, 2000 all of the time. And it would be fine as long as they didn't have those single events where they massively overeat. What if you did the opposite? So what if you ate like 2,500 calories for four days and then maybe three days you eat significantly less like 800? So that's kind of like this trend of the protein sparing modified fast. Mm -hmm would you lose more weight on those three days because your body thinks that you're burning like at the 2,400 cal or 2,500 calorie rate? The total weekly energy intake is what's going to be most important. Okay. So given the same total weekly intake, you're going to have very similar results, mm -hmm. but you might have a slight edge because of that asymmetry 
in energy um, in adaptive formogenesis that I mentioned. I think the latter scenario is definitely a lot more ideal. Now, I would not do four days high, three days low. I would do something, and I do this with a lot of clients, actually, something like three days high, one day low. And at least two studies find that it's easier for adherence. Most people think it's very difficult to have these very low days where they, you don't do a complete fast, but you would do what I recommend is a protein sparing modified fast. So you'd have maybe 1,200 calories. Um, and for I, I don't like going below 1,200 as a, as a rough rule of thumb, but okay. something like that, not, you know, 600. I don't have anyone on 600 in almost any scenario. So I think that um, that can be beneficial because at least two studies, the majority find no difference, but at least two studies indicate that it might be easier on adherence. Um, and two studies actually also find that probably because of adherence, but they, they reported similar energy intakes. They did have slightly greater fat loss. And I think it, especially if you're doing exercise, it can be beneficial to distribute more of your energy on your training days and especially in the post-workout periods, not necessarily directly post-workout, but more in the period between the workout and bedtime, because several studies find that you have better nutrient partitioning when you have your calories then, as opposed to say in the morning and then you work out in the evening. That makes sense in that when you work out, you create an anabolic window, mm -hmm. which is essentially a, a period of up to a few days possibly a, a whole week, but we don't have research on more than 72 hours, where protein synthesis can be elevated to higher levels than normal. And it's the same for endurance training. It's just that the protein synthesis in that case is more mitochondrial, so it's for energy production, right. rather than uh, myofibular, so for increased muscle growth. And in that period, you can probably augment the increase in protein synthesis by consuming more calories. Okay. At least a few studies indicate that we were looking at AM versus PM, Calorie distributions, the PM wins out um, when you're training before you have most of the calories. So I think you can also extrapolate that to across the week where you have, for example, if you train six days and you have one off day, I would generally recommend that person go relatively low on the off day. In terms of the calories and, you know, you mentioned not having anyone eat less than 1200 calories for most of the proteins being modified fast. I know that it goes down to even like 600 calories. So I'm just curious what do you generally recommend? How much protein should they be eating, especially if you're eating very limited carbs per pound of ideal body weight, lean body mass? I mean, what's your general recommendation of how much should people be eating? If you're doing strength training, you want at least 1.8 gram um, protein per kilogram total body weight per day. So a hundred kilo individual would need to consume at least 180 grams of protein per day. 50 okay. kilogram would need 90 uh, in general, I would also say you want at least 100 because for women, sometimes you can actually get uh, with very low numbers, especially more petite women that aren't very muscular and they are very lean. Mm -hmm. And research does not actually find that body mass or muscle mass even has much of an effect on protein needs. We typically base it on total body weight. Right. Some people base it on lean body mass because it's theoretically more related to protein requirements. The research that I think only two studies that we have that looked at this did not find any effect, in fact, of either body weight or lean body mass on protein requirements. So I'm, I'm hesitant of going below about 100 grams and at least 1.8 um, is probably, probably a good rule of thumb. If you're doing only endurance training, it's not my area of expertise, but I think research is generally about 1.6, 1.4 to 1.6. And for sedentary individuals or individuals that don't do um, a relatively intense exercise of some form, 
1.2, I think is about the consensus at this point. What about fat in terms of total calories? Let's say you don't really eat carbohydrates. Where would the fat fall for these individuals? I mean, if you don't eat any carbs, you can basically make <laughs> all the rest um, fat. That, that's perfectly fine. So the, then the question is basically, what do you want to do carnivore or also ketogenic carnivore? Because if you're doing just carnivore, you may not necessarily be in ketosis because your protein right. intake is too high. Yes. So a lot of people think that carnivore and ketosis are always the same, but it's not true. Right. And if you respond well to ketosis, then, um, you know, you probably want to limit protein intake a bit. Whereas if you don't, and as a strength trainee, for example, you could actually compensate for, if you're one of the individuals that does actually perform better with some carbs, if you work out, you could probably compensate for that by just having a relatively or really high protein intake. Do you think it's better for longevity to have to be in a carnivore ketogenic state, or do you think it doesn't really matter? I would probably not put my money on carnivore. Um, I'd probably go uh, keto. I do think some veggies um, are the way to go for most people. Why is that? Out of curiosity. Based on most of the the research, they're just very nutritious, satiating. Uh, Most research finds positive effects. I think some people have very poor digestive effects and that may result in inflammation and the like, but a lot of people do tolerate them very well, especially vegetables, fruits, compared to say grains. So I would not generally recommend carnivore, especially not for strength trainees. What if they ate a sufficient amount of protein? You would, I mean, based on a lot of the research you just mentioned, um, if there's no real viable. Okay. I mean, we have very, very little research on true carnivore diets. I think there are, in fact, I think there are only two case studies and they documented some adverse effects on blood lipids, but we know the blood lipids are very strongly influenced by what you eat, right. not necessarily just the macronutrients. And I see that a lot in ketogenic research. I think the if you just look at average findings of ketogenic research, then it, it portrays a, a negative, an, an fairly negative view of ketogenic diets. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at what they eat in their diets, then they're just consuming a lot of oil for right. just to, to get the fats in. They have... Uh, super low intakes of fiber, a lot of nutrients. You rarely see them consume things like organ meat, you know, and well, then you're just going to end up deficient in a lot of nutrients, which you don't have to be. I do think with both vegan and carnivore diets, you, when you do it, you have to know what you're doing because it's relatively difficult to uh, consume enough nutrients by just eating whatever. So I think for a general person that does not have any knowledge or coaching in this regard, uh, it's it's ill-advisable to go either vegan or carnivore because you'll set yourself up to very easily get deficiencies. But if you do a proper carnivore diet, you can actually cover all nutrient bases. Yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, when I first joined the carnivore community, there was a lot of the best elimination diet version of carnivores eating beef only. And then as I became a nutritionist and did a lot of my own research, I was like, wait a minute, there's a lot of nutrients that are very, very low in beef only, even mm-hmm. if you eat liver, for example, magnesium is one, B1, thiamine is another, it's very low, even if you ate uh, two pounds of meat plus mm-hmm. beef liver. And we don't think about these things, right? And no one's going to look into this, um, but I did because I was, I'm a nutritionist. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's smarter. To, and that's why I always advocate if you're going to do carnivore long term, you have to eat the rainbow, including egg yolks including fish because, and I see it, I see um, people with low omega-3 
markers in their blood because they're not eating enough fish. Because once you eat just meat, you don't really desire fish, right? Because Mm -hmm. the satiating um, foods is more like pork and beef and such. So in terms of being in a ketogenic state of carnivore, do you think, you know, in terms of the macronutrients, do you think there's a more benefit of eating a high protein carnivore versus a higher fat version of carnivore? Probably depends on total energy intake. Okay. Because if you're say bulking and you want to put on muscle and you're on say 5,000 calories a day um, as a like muscular guy, I think it's going to be very difficult in keto, uh, even if not carnivore. Sure. Because you're, even if you have some carbs, say uh, extreme scenario would be maybe a hundred gram net carbs, which is most people can't do that in keto. And then protein intake, say maybe 200 grams a day. That still leaves a whole lot of calories for fat that you have to fill with things that don't have any carbs or protein. Right. So you're eating butter, a lot of butter or a lot of olive oil, you know, so that is just very impractical. Okay. But if you're really low in calories and you're at the point of your 1,000, 1,200 calories, late stage contest prep or petite female uh, that wants to get very lean, but not too muscular, then it's, it's relatively easy. And you may benefit from the satiating and the appetite suppressing effects of uh, ketosis and you still have ample protein intake. So then it's more like, why would I spend more calories on protein, go out of ketosis, spend them sure. um, on fats? And you, well, your fat intake is ample anyway. There's people in the carnivore space where when they eat low carb um, and they eat more of the protein and they work out maybe like three, four times a week, they start waking up more often in the middle of the night and their energy is pretty low for the rest of the day. Do you think it's the macronutrients? Are they overly exercising for the, the capacity of their body? What are your thoughts of why that may be happening where their sleep is just starting to get affected and in negative way? After, after what change? Um, they, they reduce all carbohydrates. Right. So initially they might feel better without a lot of the toxins from some of maybe the more processed carbohydrates, but then once they are consistently without carbohydrates, they're doing their workouts and then their sleep, you see a little bit of that hypoglycemia in the middle of the night where they're waking up at two, three in the morning and they have like a cortisol spike. For example, we know Mm -hmm. one reason it it happens is they'll have a CGM, their blood sugar drops to like the fifties and all of a sudden it's up in the one thirties. And the only thing I notice is, yes, they're eating sufficient protein, but they are consistent people that work out. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I have seen this, actually. Um, Birger Fagerli is a strength coach that works okay. with, uh, has worked with a lot of bodybuilders okay. and like serious strength athletes and advocated carnivore diet. Wrote a book on it as well. Um, so he might be interesting as well to talk to. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's also reported this. Uh, I haven't found any solution, though, other than eating more carbs. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily a lot, but at least some, just maybe more keto rather than carnivore. I also wouldn't be able to say what causes it because I don't see mechanistically why you would get uh, hypoglycemia when you're covering all nutrient bases, you have enough protein. Uh, if anything, mostly carbohydrate restriction compared to given energy intake with more carbs improves glycemic control, you know, insulin levels. Uh, there's some debate on it, but I think the, the majority of research on the side of lower carbohydrate intakes, even independent of fat loss being better for diabetes management, et cetera. What I'm hearing from you is that the, the average person, if they want to maintain lean body mass, at least maybe for women, we exercise three to four times a week. 
um, strength training as ideal. And then in terms of- If you want to just maintain, you can can do with one, two workouts. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Even if you're muscular, it's really, really easy to maintain. With strength training, that is. Okay. And then- the carbohydrate lover will, I guess, be dependent on the person if they're having like these hypoglycemic responses that we're talking about. But in general, you don't see it too often that in studies, they need the carbohydrates to, I guess, do better in the gym. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd say that I usually don't do carnivore diet. I do ketogenic diets, but okay. within those, I don't see any negative effects really. When you do the ketogenic diet, um, how many carbs do you normally prescribe per day? Per person, and I know it'll vary a little bit, but what's your kind of range? Usually, it's a net carbohydrate intake of thirty to fifty grams. Thirty to fifty. Um, okay. Some some people are really odd in, in research. There have been reports of people on I think two hundred and eleven grams of carbs and still mm-hmm. being in ketosis, and other people have to get really wow. low. Right. Um, when you say net carbs, so you, do you deduct the fiber and the sugar alcohols? Yes, I, okay. I don't count the fiber. Yeah. Okay. So then if someone is eating like those low carb tortillas that has like, I don't know, 20 grams of carbohydrates, but then there's a lot of fiber, you would allow them to eat a lot of those because I think the net is only yes, about in, five. Okay. In, in principle, I'm not a fan of those. Typically, I think they, <laughs> they really mess up your digestion and I agree. Uh, sugar alcohols and everything. And a lot of negative effects, but in principle for the sake of ketosis, carb counting. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. And I, um, I've come to see that there are some people that just have emotional issues with food and Mm -hmm. the, the ability for veggies to kind of bloat you and make you feel more satiated and full gives a possible benefit to carnivore eaters. If they are not feeling the satiety from meat and they're over consuming Mm -hmm. food, and so that's where I think maybe for some people, veggies are a healthy ad, especially from a satiety perspective, mm-hmm. because a lot of people are overweight and imbalanced because they've lost their ability to regulate their satiety. Right. So I know you have a new book out and it's all about the mental and the psyche. And I, I really wanted you to kind of share a little bit about it. I think it's really cool. Um, I, I love that you are not only talking about the physical of how to improve our you know, our physical, but it's also, we need to, you know, change our mental side of a lot of this. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your book and the title of it? Sure. Yeah. I wrote uh, the science of self-control with uh, 50 free tips for productivity, fat loss, making your workouts easier, like less effortful um, and increasing general motivation in life. So it's, it's also a bit of general lifestyle improvement. And I want to, I want to, to write about this for a long time and I've, I've been working on this for for many years but these are issue these are topics that are do not lend themselves well to a one-time tweet or an instagram post right <laughs> so there's a lot of foundation of what actual self-control is what is willpower how does the mind work um why we should not blindly just trust our feelings when it comes to these things right. and with all of that background i put it into very actionable concrete tips on how to improve your life which i think many self-help books are sorely lacking in you know when you've read the entire book it's like everything sounded very sensible but then at the end you're like so what do i do uh and i really want to say you know this is how you manage your to-do list even things like your grocery list what kind of apps i like very concrete tips that are grounded in the science and some are more vague when it comes to changing your mindset adopting a growth mindset rather than having performance goals those things making use of implementation intentions 
Um, so yeah, it's been received super well so far, doing really well. It's, um, I'm most super surprised it hits, I think at peak number 14 on Amazon's bestseller list in, in applied psychology, oh, that's which, awesome. yeah, that's only like the likes of Jordan Peterson are above that level. Of course, I'm a, um, Jordan Peterson is there like <laughs> his entire life and I was just there uh, at peak, but still really cool to see that, uh, it did so well. Well, your articles, I mean, the articles I've written, um, I've seen on your page, um, they're very well written and it makes a lot of sense in the graphics and stuff. And then even adding a little bit of humor, I think it, mm-hmm. so I can imagine your book being really good, especially if they're, that is one thing I see in the nutrition space is people know at a certain point what foods are ideal for them or not, but we still tend to go to foods, especially when we're stressed, when we're emotional. And so there's another component that we don't look at in terms of nutrition. It's not just figuring out what foods are good for us to eat and bad. There's a lot more to it and there's a lot more depth. And so I think books like this are really important in the nutrition space. And even just for the average person to read and figure out how do I improve my life and maybe it starts with the diet, but then it can bleed into other habits um, in your entire life. So I think that's really important. From all the people you've coached and the people you've met, what are like some habits they have or some tendencies they have that make them really thrive versus the people that are still in this vicious cycle of trying to lose weight and gain weight and you know have a better physique and handle on food? My answer to this is actually very short because I would say the difference between those people and others is that they have the habits. And if you look at the one number one predictor, I go into this in my book for so many different aspects of life, consistency. People that are consistently doing things at least okay, okay. massively outperform people that are sometimes great. And you see this in absolutely anything. And it's, I also show in, in my book that they're going to, that even the brain likes consistency and it likes regular feedings. It likes being in a certain carbohydrate intake and not changing that all the time, for example. So we were very, we're biologically wired to really like to be habitual animals, to um, do things the same way, to have these habits and do things so consistently. So I think that that in itself is already the biggest difference. Well, thank you so much. And I think that holds so true. Um, where can people find your book and where can people find you? Uh, com. I'm on Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, Twitter, not so much. Uh, I have a Twitter account, but not really use it anymore. Can't just can't but most of my complicated thoughts in a tweet anymore. Um, but on my website, probably the easiest way to get to know me is from my website. You can go to, um, on the top of the page, you already see it, or manuensmos slash subscribe. And you can get a free email course where I guide you through a tour of my most popular contents, mm-hmm. things that people like the most, and uh, I think are really good for beginners. Your writing is uh, very easy to follow. And it's um, I know it's really, really backed by science. And I love that. So thank you so much for joining me today and just enlightening my community. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, guys, I hope that this interview was helpful. I hope you realized through this interview that, you know, just lifting some weights or strength training is not going to make you She-Hulk overnight. And I hope it helps you to realize also that there is a really strong placebo effect with consuming carbohydrates. If we believe that we need carbohydrates before a workout, maybe we are going to will that to become true. This is why mindset is so important, but also coupling that with the right exercise and the right diet is so key for optimal health. All right, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys later. Take care guys. Bye.
Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.